Um, so this morning as we dive in um, to Everlasting Father, I want to ask, has anybody ever, do you remember the movie Secondhand Lions? Has anybody see that? It was a really good movie. If you haven't seen it, in that movie, a young man is dropped off with his uncles for the summer, and he barely knows them. And his mom just kind of pawns him off on them for the summer. And both uncles are single, they're reclusive, and they live on a rural, a rural farm in Texas and takes place sometime after World War II, probably before the Korean War in the 1950s, maybe. And the plot of the movie climaxes with the young boy who ends up staying permanently with his two uncles. The boy discovers what it's like to have a father, but really two fathers. Both men represent different aspects of a father, which paves the way for this young man to know the love of a father. The revelation of God as Father it was, is foundational for me, and I would argue that it should be for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. I also want to walk into this morning very slowly and intentionally, and I want us to consider, and for some of you this may be the first time to consider, how we today have a view of the Father that has been formed throughout the generations that have come before us. So I don't want to take lightly the impact and the importance and even the beauty of knowing our everlasting Father. I came across this recently, and I feel that it fit perfectly with today's sermon. And this is a prayer from Polycarp, who was an early church father. He was a disciple of John, whom Jesus loved. And he prays this, Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we have come to know you through him. You are the God of angels, powers, creation, and the entire race of the righteous who live in your presence. I praise you for everything. I bless and glorify you through the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, your Son through whom and with him in the Holy Spirit be glory unto you both now and for the ages to come. Amen. Amen. Chris's opening message a few weeks ago really sets today up. And I encourage you to go back if you've not listened to it, as well as Pastor Bobby's message from last week. They both did a great job creating the context and perspective of what Isaiah was saying in his chapter 9, verse 6, and set the stage for me today. Today, this topic of talking about the Father, I will never grow tired of. This is probably the thing that I've taught on the most and will continue to teach on until I take my last breath on this earth. The importance of seeing God as Father. As we get started, I want us to read Isaiah 9, 6 one more time. And it's in the new uh, American standard that I will be reading today. He says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You're not going to get me without we nerd out just a little bit. I want to read this in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated to Greek at the time of Jesus. Verse nine, ver, chapter 9, verse 6 in Isaiah says it like this, which is very fascinating. Because a child was born to us and a son was given to us whose leadership came upon his shoulders and his name will be called Messenger of the Great Council. And his name will be called Messenger of the Great Council. It encompasses these four names that we've been discovered, the three, and then the last one will be next week, the Messenger of the Great Council. What a beautiful thing to cast upon our God. Our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, our Mighty God, our Wonderful Counselor. What a beautiful Beautiful name. Some translations in the Isaiah 9, 6 in our modern language use the term eternal father instead of everlasting. 
And I am a little partial to eternal, and here's why. It denotes something of a little bit more of importance to the scope of what eternity is, not just one aspect of Christ. But let me say it through Isaiah 45, 17 is an example. And Isaiah says, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. What is Isaiah saying here? That word everlasting is a different word here than in Isaiah 9, 6. Why do I highlight that? Because everlasting denotes something from this point forward. Versus eternity denotes no beginning nor end. He's everlasting father since the world was yet created and will be if when the world is destroyed. He is still the eternal father. And Jesus is the beautiful representation of it. Isaiah is more than pointing us in a direction, but he is revealing that through the Son that is given to us, we will see and we will know the Father. My first point, as we jump into the outline, says it's, it's, it's a question, what was Jesus primarily revealing? And I mean through his incarnation. What was Jesus revealing as he came as a man onto this earth? And my first point inside of that is he reveals the love of the Father. John 5, 19 says this, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does or also does in like manner. Jesus reveals how much the Father loves by presently and actively doing what he sees the Father do. So when Jesus heals, he already saw the Father heal. Amen. We have an example in 2 Kings 5 of Naaman being healed from leprosy. The Father healed him. Way before Jesus' birth to Mary. That means that through eternity, Jesus saw the healing of Naaman. So therefore, Jesus does only what he sees his father do. Can we imagine just for a moment to be witnesses, to see everything that the father's done, is doing, continually does, has done, will do? From our human vantage point and our perspective, I think we're severely limited though. I know I am. You see, I don't know if I can grasp, or maybe any of you or those who are online, can grasp this four to five or even 6D dimension that God can see through. I have a 3D dimension that I see in. God is seeing things at the beginning of time and to the end. I don't know if I can comprehend that. But what, would, what, but what Jesus was demonstrating is that he truly was and is doing what he saw the Father do, and revealing something else that I'm going to share here in a moment. Jesus even also prayed in the garden as he was about to be arrested that I be in them, speaking of the apostles, as, they are, as I am in you, Lord, and that also those who come after will have the same thing. That Jesus be in the Father and, the, and them be in Jesus. He's only doing what he sees the Father do. Jesus was in the Father. Therefore, we in Christ. Which means that we get to do and live as Jesus did. Which is a beautiful thing. What what else was Jesus revealing? He was revealing how strong the love of a father is. Luke 15, 11 through 32. I'm not going to read it. That's a lot. And I should have told Danny that before she uploaded it all to the computer. (laughs) We're going to paraphrase this because it's a lot. But this parable is of the prodigal son. And this was the first thing when Bobby gave me the choice of what to preach for these weeks. I I chose this sermon because of the father. And this was the first parable that came to mind. Because I can't think of a better example of a father than the uh, the father of the prodigal son. Also, Henry Nguyen, 
who was an author and a writer. He was Catholic. But he shares that upon seeing Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, this, made, this caused him to discover an ancient truth, that it's his identity is as a son, waiting to return to the father. This parable is preached many different ways. It's preached as the son returning. It's, re- it's preached as the son who stayed. It's even preached as the father running out to the street to meet the son who was on his way home and giving, ordering a robe and ring to be placed on him. However, I want us to focus on something slightly obscure in this. And we're going to pull two things that are sometimes perhaps even overlooked. And the first one is this. The father willingly gives the younger son his inheritance. What father does that? (laughs) If I were to go to my father, and I got two earthly fathers, if I were to go to either one of them, and I were to ask for my inheritance, first they would laugh because they would think that I'm joking with them. But then once they saw how serious I was, there would be a lot of questions that would come after that. The first one being, how bad are you at finances that you need, all, that you need your inheritance now? And then I would probably be sternly rebuked by them. And I would walk away the same way I came. Well, maybe slightly different because I would be broken. I would have broken pride and I would be filled with shame for even asking in the first place. But that's not what the father did here. He willingly gave the son his full inheritance. Mine and your Western perspective has skewed our understanding of this. I'm not sure how the son even had the fortitude to ask for the inheritance. For my lived theology, an inheritance isn't a guarantee. Requiring an inheritance from my parents, for me, would put them in an awkward position that I shouldn't put them in. An inheritance is something that's only given if and when there's any money left after someone passes away. And only then, not before. My family does not have the same value as this culture did. But the people hearing this message and hearing this parable, they knew exactly what was going on. From this, uh, so from this culture's perspective, this was not out of the question. Because it was a given that your parents were storing up an inheritance for you. It was part of just the way that they did life. This, but also... This would not have ended well for the father or the son if the son would have returned home broken, beaten, and poor because he wasted his money. The father would have been looked upon negatively by the culture. The son wouldn't have been welcomed home. So when the father runs out to the street to meet the son and greet him and then order the ring and the robe, he was reinstating the son into the family. And we're going to see a little bit more of the why he was being reinstated. Because my second point is that the father loved the older son just as much as the younger. He reminds the older son to rejoice at the return of his brother. In verse 32 says, but we had, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brothers of this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. It's fascinating that the word dead is used, which literally translated is corpse. So when the father willingly gave the inheritance to his younger son, immediately when that son left, that son was dead. You're not in the father's house anymore. Goodbye. Did the father grieve? Did the father grieve at the loss of his son? Because he's dead to him. Like, it's weird. Like, you go from having a relationship to him gone now. You can't see, touch, talk to, maybe get mad at for taking your money and running. But it was his, so he willingly gave it to him. 
To me, this shows that once the father gave the inheritance, yes, he thought of his, uh, yes, he thought of him as he was dead. But it was more that he was willingly giving and not withholding something, because he had to know what the son was going to do. He wasn't saying, "Dude, I really got this awesome investment idea. I think we should do this." No, he just asked for what he what he thought or knew was his. As Jesus was sharing this parable, I would imagine that the Jewish people who heard this knew exactly what was happening. And that was that the Father is a representation of the, how the Heavenly Father loves. Amen. The son who remained in the house was mad at the one who left, and he was even mad when he returned. Yet the Father willingly gave, whether it was stored up inheritance for the son or the fatted calf to sell it for the celebration when he came. The father willingly gave of himself to his children. They probably also were reminded of Abraham in this. It's one more reminder that Jesus said, I do as I've seen my father do. The father willingly gave up himself for the Israel people, for the for the Israelite people, provided for them, gave to them, provided for them, gave to them repeatedly over and over again throughout the years, even giving the most of the greatest inheritance of all, which was a son. My next point in this is, is that Jesus was also revealing just how eternal he was. John 8, 56 and 58. This is a major revelation for the time of Jesus, and it is still deeply revelatory today. Verse, verse 56 says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How audacious for Jesus to speak in such a manner. You know, in the garden is the next time he says the words, I am. And what happens? Soldiers fall down. At the weight of those words. How audacious of Jesus to speak in a manner that was the straight up truth of himself. That I am. Not only did Jesus reveal the true hearts of those who were hearing the words in person. That they placed Abraham above the coming Messiah. Those leaders were supposed to be the most bright. The most intelligent. And had the best knowledge of scripture. Yes, yet they missed the prophetic fulfillment that was right in front of them. They did not have eyes to see the Christ standing right in their midst. Can you imagine saying something so profound and weighty and precise that a group listening to you attempts to murder you? Oh, we, we see that today all the time with political discourse on social media or in, or in person today. Bobby preached this lab on part of what Bobby, actually, hold, hold on. I got one more point in that. Can you imagine seeing something so profound that their first instinct would be to murder you? I don't think that much has changed in human nature. Last week, Bobby mentioned Hebrews 1.3 that, and he is the radiance of, of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. This is Jesus. The exact representation of the Father standing in front of these religious leaders. When Jesus says these words, he spoke to his eternal presence and sonship, which, he, which aggravated the religious leaders. He aggravated the religious leaders because it questioned whether they were prepared to see the Ancient of Days walk in front of them. Whether they were prepared for the Ancient of Days to walk in front of them. Can you imagine these leaders denying this 
fact, this truth, like how, I mean, today, what if something were like that, that to happen to us today? Would we be so closed-handed that we would not be willing to hear the Lord speak in a moment? My next point is how the Father is revealed throughout generations. Through the generations, sorry. How the Father is revealed through the generations. This is another lived theology thing for me. And, uh, and it's foundational in my life. And I learned this very early on in my surrender journey. Is that if God doesn't become the father, father to the children, to my father, to the next generation, we will lose them completely. If he doesn't become as real to them as he is to me, or as real as he is, not just to me, if he doesn't become theirs, what do they have to stand on? Nothing. Vapor. It'll be passed right away. And we'll miss an entire generation of people. I've unfortunately seen this play out time and time again. But when every person or every generation has their encounter with the Father and they begin to follow him as if their life depends on it, you will see sons and daughters remain faithfully allegiant no matter what comes their way, whether successes or sadness. Their identity is rooted in Jesus and everything else comes from there. We may be able to see this now, but how did the generations even before Jesus remain allegiant to Yahweh? Because there was a lot of challenges that they were faced with. There was a lot of things that they were faced with throughout history. So how did those throughout history remain faithfully allegiant to Jesus? We're gonna, I want us to look at a few people in the Old Testament. We're going to look at six people in uh, part of Jesus' lineage. And it's in Matthew 1, 5 and 6. And it says this, When so- Solomon became the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz became the father of Obed by Ruth, And Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David the king. We're going to, I want us to highlight one thing about each of these people. First is Rahab. She was a harlot and most likely not an Israelite. Boaz, he was a wealthy Israelite who was targeted by a widow named Naomi. Ruth, the widowed daughter of Naomi, she ended up marrying Boaz. Obed, or, uh, Obed is the father of Jesse, and in Ruth 4.15, she says that he is the son of redemption for my grandmother, for his grandmother. Jesse tried to hide his young son, David, so when Samuel came, he was like, here's my sons, but yet he hid David outside so that David couldn't be seen by Samuel. Why did he choose to hide this ruddy little boy outside and not allow Samuel to meet him? And then the last one is David, the greatest king in Israel's history who also had a man killed after getting a woman pregnant who was not his wife. All of these people have one thing in common. Yes, they're part of Jesus' lineage, but they also share something else, that they are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. And they might not pass a background check today. (laughs) And they might be looked down upon. I'm not even sure that David would be allowed on the leadership team at churches. (laughs) Reality. I mean, it's the truth. He'd have to walk through a, a lot of restoration for the things that he did because it wasn't just the adultery that he committed. There was a lot of things that he did. But once again, this shows us that God sees things differently than we do. Our human vantage point cannot see the things that God sees. Only God can see through our sketchy backgrounds that draw us back to Christ. Because I got a sketchy background. I am not, I did not live up to a standard for a long time. But the Father, in his great love, 
drew me through Christ so that I can be a son. Let's move on to my next point. The Father is the God of our children's children. Verse 32 in Matthew 22 says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is one of the main reasons I'm involved in next generation or youth ministry. It's for everybody to have God become their God and not just follow for the sake of following. Uh, Helping young people not only experience the love of the Father, but begin to follow Him, surrender their lives to Him, and see who the Father is through Jesus. That is a primary goal and objective for me in youth ministry. And I don't know if that will ever change. I know that we grow and we adapt and we over time, but this is a core value that I don't know how I can move this because I see it tried and true. Nothing, nothing will stand in the way of, whole, of that young person being allegiant to God when, father, when the Father becomes real to them. Amen. So true. It's a terrible, it's an odd statistic that I've seen on socials and Emily reminded me yesterday that, and this isn't a knock on, you know, wives, but it said that when women or wives, moms become Christians, a small percentage of their family does. But when fathers become followers of Christ, it's like 80 plus percent. Their family follows suit. Hello. Why else is culture attacking the, uh, the, the, the home? If we remove fathers from homes, what are we going to be left with? An epidemic of fatherlessness. That I was guilt, that I fell right into. And some of you here today, and listen online, probably fell right into that as well. But it's the love of the Father that draws you in through His Son, calls you by, his, by your name, and brings you in to the Father's house. How beautiful is that? When God becomes the Father, when God becomes God of our children's children, we begin to build a spiritual inheritance that cannot be saved up but given away. As Abraham was faithful, was a faithful father, passing on everything to his promised son Isaac, and then Isaac, all he had onto his son Jacob, who wrestled with God, reveals how each generation receives their spiritual inheritance at a proper time, which allows for their allegiance to be rooted in the God of the universe. But this leads me into a question. And that's how do we raise up faithful followers of Jesus throughout all generations? And this is going to be an obvious one because I've already alluded to it already. And that's children should not live vicariously through their parents. I'll also add their leaders, whether local in the church, coaches, friends, teachers, You can't live vicariously through others. I firmly believe that this is one of the most, most, if not the most tragic things that I see in ministry, and not just youth ministry. This is for adults, that we vicariously live through leaders. Whether it's a television personality that is a slick talker, or whether it's somebody who's just super charismatic and we just get enamored by the things that they say, if we follow just their faith, what are we going to be left with? Vapor. You're going to be left beat up, tired, broke, because you gave them a bunch of money. And then where's your faith? It's stored up in another man's faith, not in God as your father, but as God as theirs. So how do we raise up these believers, these children, to not be vicarious leaders? And I do realize that there's a lot of tension in this as we live and lead. And in one sense, as children grow, we become more open-handed with them, where we have to allow them 
to discover God for themselves, but what ends up happening is it's open to where they could not discover God. And that's a challenge and a tension that we have to be faced with. Because on the other hand, if we do it close-handedly, what happens? We're going to be controlling. We're going to tell them what, how, when they have to do things. And that's potentially just as, if not, more dangerous. Not everyone is perfect, and life and traumas in life and just comes at you fast and punches you in the gut sometimes. But it's your allegiance and faithfulness as parents and leaders that speaks a better word. How you walk through life's traumas, ups and downs, enable, enables the next generation to see how you do it. And if you're choosing to be allegiant to God in your actions... What is it? Things are caught sometimes better than taught. I mean, I've worked with kids enough, and I know I've only had one living in my house for six months, but they catch a lot. And they might act like they're not listening, but they are. And are they only repeating the negative things that you say? Because they're like, wait a minute, how did they learn how to do that? Oh, it's me. It's my fault. I look like my parents, too. You look like your parents. You might, not, you might want to deny it, but you do look like your parents if you were raised with them. Sorry, if you weren't, you might look like the person you were raised with. But you look just like them. So you have to look in the mirror. Let's keep moving. Being the right amount of Jesus for your children allows for them to develop the right way. Too much Jesus? I don't know if you can do too much Jesus, but sometimes it feels a little heavy-handed. <laughs> One of the more challenging things to do as a parent or leader is let young people develop their own walk with God. Whether it's finding a new method to solve a question, or perhaps come to a slightly different conclusion than you on even a spiritual topic. That can be very difficult. However, as we walk alongside young people and we are being there for them, assisting them as the Spirit leads, we will be a, more of a benefit for them than taking away from them. Something I'm reminded of often, and when I'm around my stepdad recently, I think more I've seen it, and that's, um, he taught me something when I was probably 16, not quite 17. So in the mid-90s, it was uh, the rave culture, was pretty big, and so I don't know, some of you parents might remember, our jeans are a little tighter today than they were then. They were like those big Jenko jeans that were like pretty big, and so I felt super cool, and if you've known me for any time, you realize that I'm not cool, <laughs> that I bought a pair of these jeans, and I felt, I felt amazing. Well, I go home, and my dad was furious at me that I would wear something so awful, and this is what he said to me. He said, Nick, it is my job to keep you inside the bounds of life. He goes, when you go outside of these boundaries, it's my job to pull you in. When you're inside these boundaries, you can do, live whatever you want. It's your life. Figure it out. Do it. But the minute you step outside of these boundaries, I'm going to pull you in. Now, he used to do that somewhat violently with a lot of anger. And maybe it was because I spoke up for myself that he had to develop a better way to let me hear from him. So when I did this, which doesn't seem like, it seems like a trivial thing, it's just genes. But he did not, he had a different plan for me. I need you to be in here. This is where you need to thrive and live. And when you step outside of here, you can't do that. I'm going to use the football examples. Are football fans? So 15 years ago, we would not have expected the RPO to be as popular as it is today. RPO stands for run-pass option. A lot of high schools and colleges run it because it's, we have a lot more running quarterbacks now than we did 15 years ago. So what is a run-pass option? When a quarterback is at the line of scrimmage, he's judging the defense. And then he has a decision to make when he hikes the ball whether that's to run it himself, pass it or hand it off to the running back, or throw it to another skill player that's out on the field. 
We didn't think as football players, as football fans, and most of you might agree to this, we didn't think that would be as popular today in the NFL as it is. We would expect packet, pocket passers to be the predominant thing, but it's growing here. It's a new method to do something that we had to allow somebody to develop. And if we were too close-handed, if coaches were too close-handed and didn't allow players to determine how they coach, then they wouldn't develop the individual. You would be forcing that person into doing something that they're not comfortable with or their skill set might not be. Another example is just how we teach kids. Some are more hands-on. I was a hands-on person. So when my, I had the opportunity to do the VOTEC program for my local high school, I flourished because I could do something with my hands. It's not that I was dumb. It's that I can't sit in a classroom and just try to learn. Even though now I study and read more than I ever have in my entire life, is maybe it's just a full circle irony. But if I wasn't allowed to determine, to figure out who I was, and my parents be okay with it looking differently, then I would have been forced into a pigeonhole that I wouldn't have flourished in. And that same thing for leaders in the church. It's our job to help young people, to help everybody. This is the field of life to play in. But the minute you get into heresy, and I don't mean whether or not women can be in leadership, okay? That's not heresy. Heresy is denying the divinity of Jesus. If somebody's getting into that, I'm going to pull you back into here a little bit. That's what we do as leaders, is we enable the next generation to discover it for themselves, to let God become their father. And the method might be different. But that doesn't mean that God is. Amen. It is deeply important. And maybe this is just me and I'm just sharing new information to you, but this is foundational for me and how I help the next generation become who God is to them. Important. Deeply important. All right. Back to my notes. And back to Abraham. My next point is Abraham's faith enabled the promise for his son. I'm not going to read it, but it's Hebrews 11:17. 17. This cannot be overstated or overlooked, that your faith as parents enable the spiritual inheritance to be built for your children. And this is also for spiritual parents. Your faith enables those who follow you and who look up to you, especially those you disciple, to receive all they have from the Lord. This becomes beautiful lineage. Beautiful lineage of the Father that works throughout the generations, whether they're deeply flawed or not. Point number three. Culture, whether religious or secular, can distort man's perspective of God. Matthew 12, 10 through 14 says this. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? He said, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched it out, it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as how to destroy him. The religious culture of the Pharisees and Sadducees over time added stipulations to various aspects to God's law. So much so that it was almost impossible to follow. And we could speculate as to why. Whether it was fear, whether it was they just wanted control, whether it was power, or maybe just the slow burn of corruption that slowly distorted the truth over time. What started out probably was Pharisees as Jesus trying to help with righteousness morphed into something impossible to adhere to. 
The Sabbath was meant as a day of rest from work. So let's back up. So do you think that the Sadducees and Pharisees thought that Jesus had to work hard at healing this guy? How dare you? How dare you think for one second that I, Nick, can heal anybody? That ain't work. That's the power of the Spirit moving, not me working to make something get done. So the Pharisees' mindsets were stuck that they had to work hard to get something. Jesus wasn't working. Work takes something from you. Work drains you throughout your week. I know I work for the church, but I enjoy my days off, guys. You, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a tradesman, whether you're you know, a stay-at-home, or whether you're a, not a stay-at-home mom, whether you work from home as a mom or a dad, there's dads that work from home too. Work can be draining. But when Jesus healed, do you think Jesus was like, oh, this is so much work to get this done? No. The Spirit of God moved and healed. How dare you Pharisees think for one second that you could work to heal a man? The Sabbath is rest. And rest isn't just doing nothing. Yesterday was rest for me and Emily. We went out shopping for Christmas, which doesn't seem restful, but we were at rest yesterday. I mean, we were not exhausted. Now, we didn't go to retail stores. We went to... Uh, like a Christmas bazaar flea market thing and we got but we were at rest during that because it wasn't draining from us to do it it brought us life and not just because it was the two of us but that probably had something to do with it too so when Jesus heals on the Sabbath it is the power of God which provides that miracle not man working hard enough to get it done Because I could sit there and work at that guy's hand or we could have him go to a surgeon and it could get done. But it's the miracle and power of God that performs that. Not man working for something. Matthew continues to this. He says in verse 15, But Jesus, aware of this room, withdrew from there, followed by, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Yes, he did. Every single one of them was healed, according to Scripture, and I believe it's true. But he also, he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel. So he's going to dip away before they throw a rock at his face. He, will, he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and his name among the Gentiles will hope. With this we see the everlasting Father bringing forth and fulfilling his word in the Christ. How beautiful. Luke 4, 17-18. Once again, I'm going to paraphrase. So forgive me, Danny, for not telling you this sooner. Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath to read and teach. He, He reads from Isaiah proclaims the words are fulfilled in their midst, and, he, and then there was intense fellowship that followed after he sits down. The exchange finished with so much anger that they sought to kill the Messiah who sat in front of them. It's fascinating that when our worldview that we've created in this bubble starts to get challenged with truth, anger is a natural response. But murder... That's a little much. The culture of those allegiant to Jesus in the first century demonstrated patience like no other. When the sacred cow of of your religion causes you to react in such a way that's not only becoming but reverts to violence, you may want to rethink a few things. 
it's time to go back to the drawing board. I'm currently reading this book called The Patient Ferment, which goes through the formation of the early church, especially surrounding three treatises written by three different men that are different leaders in different areas of the world, all around one's in northern Africa, one's in Palestine, and one's in southern Turkey. But each one writes on the subject of patience and how this was the true marker of somebody who was a follower of Jesus. You don't look like the world because you walk with a level of patience that nobody else has. That's for me, okay? I need a level of patience in my life that supersedes everything else. Because man, is it easy to drive your car when you leave out of here and get angry. Dog, that's, that's probably my worst thing is driving. I like to drive, but other people don't like to drive the way I want them to. Patience was a marker of followers of Jesus. I need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded of that. And the Jewish leaders of that day needed to see it firsthand. How dare you react in such a way? It's fascinating. My last point is this. Jesus gives the Father a specific distinction like never before. He makes a statement in teaching on prayer that brings the Father closer than ever before. And that's with two words. Our Father. I'm not going to read them, but we're very familiar. Matthew 6 and Luke 11. Each of these passages... Jesus answers his disciples' request to teach them how to pray. In one passage, he says, when you pray, say this. And in the other passage, he says, pray in this way. Two ways to pray. One, use these words. The other way, use this as a model to pray. When Jesus instructs his disciples to say, our Father, he is bringing the everlasting, eternal Father into a position that's not been allowed before. You see, he made it personal with himself, which was an audacious claim. But then he made it personal for them, for the early church throughout the centuries, and for us today, that he is our father, that he's my father, that I get to pray in the morning, our father, I get to use it like this. Somebody preached this a long time, years ago. He said, when you have a relationship with God the Father, it's like you're able to walk into your parents' house, open a cabinet and grab something, open a refrigerator, get something to drink, grab something cold to drink, grab something to eat and sit down on the couch. You might not want to put your feet on the coffee table because that might be rude, but take your shoes off. Get comfortable because you're in the Father's house. You're allowed to walk in. You can make it personal and say, our Father. How beautiful is that? That Jesus made this so personal for us that we don't have to have this Epicurean view of God is far off and doesn't deal with man anymore. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. The distinction of God as Father, as I've shared in the past here a few times, and I've preached this sermon many times, but how God became Father. And you can see this thread throughout Israel culminating in Christ. When Jesus says the words, Our Father, he changed the scope of how we view God. Because before, he was the God of our fathers in the past. He was this one-time thing in the past, and we serve God now. But no, Jesus changed it to an eternal. He was the God of our fathers, but he's now our God. And then hopefully he becomes the God of our children's children. So it's this beautiful view of eternity of an everlasting father revealing through Christ the connection he has with him. So as they are in each other, so Jesus is in us. And we have this beauty of eternity of with our Father. Isn't it wonderful? 
isn't it wonderful to be able to use those words and like, like how I started this to say, I don't want to lose the importance of what this means. And I know that I'm saying things repeatedly over and over again, and it's, it's almost lunchtime and we're hungry, but let's hear it one more time. He's our father. Let's stand. I'm going to invite Peter to come up and play. And the worship team, or the uh, altar ministry team, I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'm going to read Psalm 117 over us as we close. And I want you to close your eyes. Because all these words that we've been describing, whether it's wonderful counselor, whether it's mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, all of these things are summed up like I stated in that words from the Septuagint that says, Messenger of the Great Council. That all these words can be summed up in the Father. That He is your Father. And if you feel in this moment that Maybe you're reminded of something that you're far away from him. Maybe that you don't feel like you're even a son or a daughter. Or you feel distant from him as father. I want you to just sit with that for a moment. And I want you to say the words one more time. Our father. Because he's not just yours. He's everything. We're in a body of believers across this wonderful planet. He's all of ours. No matter the color of our skin, no matter our economic background or current economic position or where we live or the car we drive, He's our Father. Our eternal Father who from the foundation of the world has been, is, and will be. Psalm 117 says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. This morning, Father, we praise you. We praise you as our Father. And Lord, as you have been speaking this morning, and even in this moment, speaking as in, to individuals this, right now, Lord, I just pray, God, that if somebody feels distant, they would be drawn back into you. That if somebody's hurting, you would fill that hurt. That if they don't feel like a son, you would call them by their name and that brings them in to your house for them to eat, for them to drink, for them to celebrate because the calf has been slaughtered. And since the foundation of the world, Jesus is who he says he is. And that is I am. The exact representation of the Father. And so, Lord, we bless you this morning in your Son's name. Amen.